Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. If 100% is I'm quitting and I'm leaving, I'm 80% there. There's a lot that pulls me back, um, and that has continued to be the case even as I become increasingly skeptical and frustrated with Facebook. It's a drug that, that you use to relieve the pain caused by the drug. So yeah, it's an addiction. We've seen through the ad, the way that Facebook is able to tailor ads to say, white nationalists with a passion for Nazis and crocheting. It does seem to be research suggesting that the algorithms have pernicious effects. It's extremely valuable to me personally, and yet I am deeply troubled by what it is as a company. This is not a college student's mistake. This is a grown-up's mistake. If you're trying to leave Facebook, the bottom line is, one, you can. It is possible. Two, you need an exit strategy. Just, just, just leave. See how it goes. The water's fine. Come on out. The future is shaped by technology, but technology is shaped by us. You're listening to Soonish. I'm Wade Rausch. And this is an episode about Facebook. But I actually want to start by taking a quick detour to talk about a little piece of automotive history. In 1968, the Ford Motor Company decided to build a new compact car to compete with the small cars being imported from Japan. Ford called its new compact the Pinto. A two-door sedan version of the Pinto hit the market in 1970, and a Pinto hatchback came out in 1971. They sold pretty well. There was just one problem. Ford's engineers realized that they'd chosen an unwise location for the Pinto's fuel tank. Instead of putting it above the rear axle, where it would have been out of the way during a collision, they put it between the rear axle and the rear bumper, where it was relatively unprotected. So even in a low-speed collision, the gas tank could rupture, causing the whole vehicle to erupt in flame. It was almost like the Pinto had a button on its rear bumper marked Explode. But instead of altering the design before releasing the car, Ford did a cost-benefit analysis. The company figured out that it would be so expensive to relocate the fuel tank, or add more shielding, that it would be cheaper in the long run just to pay any damage claims that might result from the unfortunate design choice. And that seemed like an okay plan, until actual Pintos started exploding on actual roadways. That attracted the attention of journalists and federal transportation safety investigators. In 1977, the magazine Mother Jones published internal Ford memos showing that the company had put cost savings ahead of safety. And later that year, the company ended up getting hit with millions of dollars in damage awards. In 1978, Ford finally recalled all Pintos built between 1971 and 1976, and upgraded them with new shielding. By that point, the company had already learned to put the gas tanks in a safer place in new models. And there's no solid evidence that more Pinto owners died specifically because of the fuel tank design problem. Overall, fatality rates on the road were much, much higher in the 1970s than they are today. So it's hard to sort out the signal and the noise. But it did take years for Ford to recover from the bad press. Now, I'm not bringing up this old story about the Ford Pinto in order to criticize Ford. 
Today, Ford makes some of the safest cars on the road. Here is the real point I want to make. Facebook is the Ford Pinto of the internet. Over the past three years, there's been an unending series of scandals and investigations and congressional hearings, all exposing the flaws built into Facebook's technology and its business model. And we've seen how these flaws are blowing up discourse and democracy itself in the countries that Facebook's 2.2 billion users call home. I am not going to dwell on all of these problems in this episode. I'll just highlight what I think is one of the biggest problems, which is Facebook's core business model of targeted advertising, or what I think of as the emotion pump. Facebook watches you to learn what makes you happy and what makes you angry, and it uses that data to sell targeted ads. It also keeps track of what's most engaging for everyone else, and then it shows you more of that stuff, the better to keep you scrolling so that you'll see more ads and more provocative stories so that you'll keep scrolling, and so on. Now, the insidious thing in all this is that the content that keeps people the most engaged is also the most polarizing and the most likely to be false or inflammatory. But it's in Facebook's interest to keep priming that emotion pump so that you'll keep scrolling. So we shouldn't be surprised when Facebook posts end up fanning the flames of ethnic hatred and political unrest in countries like Myanmar, the Philippines, and the United States. Okay, I could spend the whole episode talking just about what's broken at Facebook, but I just said I wouldn't do that. And really, I don't need to, because the stories have been all over the news ever since the 2016 election. Which, by the way, very likely got tipped in Donald Trump's favor because of inflammatory ads and posts placed on Facebook by Russian hackers. Now, finally, it looks like executives at Facebook are waking up to these problems and talking about ways to fix them. In March of 2019... Mark Zuckerberg announced that he wants to take the company in a new direction, away from its emphasis on the public news feed, and toward more support for private messaging within smaller groups. But that's a little bit like a car manufacturer saying, hey, yeah, we're thinking about maybe recalling some of those unsafe vehicles we sold you, and maybe we'll make the new model better someday. You still wouldn't feel great about getting into your old 1971 Ford Pinto. And that probably explains why data from Nielsen and polls from the Pew Research Center show that Americans have been spending way less time on Facebook over the last year or two. That's definitely true for me. I decided back in November of 2018 that I was going to leave Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp. Once I finish this episode and release it to the world, that's it, I'm out. I'll be shutting down my accounts because I'm just tired of feeding the Facebook monster with my clicks and my attention. But I'm trying not to leave in a big huff. My goal is to try and sign off in a thoughtful way that might help other people decide what they should do about Facebook. And that's what this episode is about. I've been talking with a bunch of friends and colleagues about Facebook. And today, I want to share some of those conversations with you. If you're still on Facebook, the ideas that my friends shared might help you decide whether to stay or go. And if you do decide to leave, how to do it as painlessly as possible. The whole idea here at Soonish is that we humans can shape our own future by choosing which technologies we want with us in that future. If that's true, then we have to be able to walk away from technologies that are as broken and problematic as Facebook. Or this idea about our free will to choose is just fake. And that's not a possibility I'm willing to accept. Okay, it's time to meet the people you're going to be hearing from in this episode. These are all folks who saw my Facebook post about leaving last November and volunteered to talk with me about it. You can think of them as the special advisory panel for this episode. 
Hi, I'm Tova Perlmutter. I've been friends with Wade for uh, about 30 years since we were in college together. I'm Rudy Seitz, and uh, I'm a software developer and musician. My name is Kip Clark, and I do a number of things, I think, that are all bound by curiosity and playfulness. So that includes the podcast that I produce, that includes improv, comedy, and I'm also a big fan of video games. My name is Tamar Avishai. I am an art historian. I'm Peter Fairley. I am a freelance journalist. Um, I split my time between Victoria, British Columbia, up in Canada, and San Francisco. My name's Nick Anderson. Uh, I'm, I produce the Masterpiece Studio podcast at WGBH, and I'm also a senior producer at Ministry of Ideas. My name is Deborah, freelance writer living in Minneapolis. My name is Mark Hurst, and I'm the host of a weekly FM radio show called Tectonic on WFMU, a Jersey City, New Jersey-based, freeform independent radio station. My name is Ashira Morris, and I run Inbound Boston, which is a newsletter guide to the city of Boston, and I am Facebook-free for over four years. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. Feels good. <laughs> You'll recognize a couple of these names from other shows in the Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, namely Tamar Avishai from The Lonely Palette and Nick Anderson from Ministry of Ideas. Now, as you'll hear, most of these folks still have Facebook accounts, but they're thinking hard about what role Facebook should have in their lives going forward. A couple of them have already left Facebook and have interesting perspectives to share on what life is like without it. Everybody was extremely open with me about their experiences and feelings. And in almost every conversation, one of the first things that came up was that Facebook does have its uses. I've lived really around the world, um, Japan, France, Canada, U.S., and so Facebook has really been a way, um, I would say first and foremost, of staying in touch with, with all of those people that I've met and, and uh, connected with and then moved away from. And, uh, and not only connecting with them, but sometimes bringing them together in fun ways. I heard, I heard an interview the other day where someone described it as an event planner and a, and a phone book. Um, and that really spoke to me because I think that's the way I use it now and that's the way I've used it for a very long time. I went to my 10-year high school reunion a few years ago and it was amazing how quickly we could all get past the bullshit it felt like we all already knew the baseline information about each other. And so we were able to go deeper because we had something that was relentlessly pushing each other's um, shallow information in front of each other all the time. So you're saying you actually use Facebook Messenger more than the Facebook newsfeed? Absolutely, and I think that's been the case probably starting with my first year in college, where for the first time ever, I was away from a lot of my friends. And sure, I used the phone and would text, but starting in about 2012, I started using Facebook Messenger absolutely far more than the news feed. My job is advocating for Palestinian human rights. And so people in Gaza, you know, they're living on maybe $100 a month. Um, they have electricity only a few hours a day. Uh, they're not able to travel. They, they, you know, their phones don't work a lot of the time. And so I accept friend requests and I 
interact with people who I feel need this connection to the outside world. And so that's a large part, actually, of why I keep Facebook is this sense that there are people for whom it's, ugh, I don't like the word lifeline, but at least a pipeline to the outside world from which they are otherwise isolated. I have friends right now, but I don't have community at all. I need some kind of community existence, you know, expecting people to assemble a family out of nothing is a really tall order. People really need tribes. Do you feel like there was a possibility at one point that Facebook could be that tribe for some people or could at least provide some semblance of a tribe? Oh, I think it does provide a semblance for sure. And, and there are some people who totally benefit from it. There's also an inner archivist in me that loves that I can scroll back through a conversation with someone I've known now for eight or nine years and see what we were saying in high school, however much it might make me shudder or blush in embarrassment. And so I do appreciate the ability to explore that. I have 15 years worth of my own history that I can pull up in these photos and relationships and you know I look at myself through through those photos and it's like these are especially formative years. I don't know when you joined it, but I, I do think that it's really important that I and most of the people I know joined it right at its starting point. And so to lose that is to lose our whole young adulthood. So yes, Facebook is useful. For a lot of folks, it's both a community gathering place and a kind of digital scrapbook of their lives. But these same folks are completely aware that Facebook is a special kind of community, one that's designed to encourage dependency. For all of the flaws that Facebook has, there's always some piece of music I discover that someone's posted, some really um, urgent article about climate change that someone's posted. There's a lot that pulls me back, um, and that has continued to be the case even as I become increasingly skeptical and frustrated with Facebook. I do think the more that I learn about Facebook, the less willing I am to contribute to their bottom line. But in almost a drug dependency kind of vernacular, it is tough to, it is tough in my mind to wean myself off of it. Um, I probably check Facebook every time I open an internet browser. Like, it is my nervous tick. And I open up an internet browser any time I lose focus doing whatever else I'm doing. So I check Facebook. I would be, I would be horrified to count how many times a day. It's a drug. It's a drug that, that you use to relieve the pain caused by the drug. So yeah, it's an addiction. It is an addiction. So that's one of the ironic things about Facebook. People use it partly just to stave off moments of loneliness, which is not at all the same thing as actually connecting. In fact, a lot of what Facebook shows you to fill up those lonely moments isn't designed to challenge you or make you think or learn or connect. If anything, it's selected to reinforce the opinions and the worldview that you already have. And of course, Facebook knows what those opinions are because they're always watching you. What's changed recently is that users are more aware of this constant surveillance, and they're more and more unhappy about it. Like, it's not just filter bubbles in terms of what you personally want to surround yourself with. It's filter bubbles in terms of what Facebook thinks you want to surround yourself with, which I think is even more insidious. 
you know, I think, oh, I'm not really telling Facebook anything. All I'm doing is logging on and consuming. Uh, and I'm consuming just by very, very carefully, selectively clicking on a few things, but mostly just scrolling down, you know, scrolling through the feed and, and, and reading things. But even that scrolling behavior reveals uh, a ton of information about what I'm interested in, um, what I care about, what I'm willing to spend time reading. We've seen through the ad, the way that Facebook is able to tailor ads to say, um, white nationalists with a passion for Nazis and crocheting, like they can do that because they can use their ad categories. And so I like to pretend like I'm fighting the man by telling him I'm not interested in these things. But I, you know, Facebook still knows everything it wants about me. It has reams of data about me for de- for more than a decade of my life. So who am I kidding, you know? does seem to be research suggesting that the algorithms have pernicious effects. We had a local election here out here in Victoria in October, and it was extremely disturbing to me the way Facebook was used by opponents of the incumbent mayor, who is a a woman who is um, a lesbian, who is fairly progressive. And there were sponsored posts going around town that were incredibly demeaning. She was reelected with very strong margin, but I was I was just so disgusted at how you know easy it was for someone probably paying very little money to send around uh, the kind of material that that I had to see. Again, it shouldn't be a surprise if you have, like, you know, most people in the country interacting on a a platform. It shouldn't be a surprise that it's going to have an effect on our democratic process. But when you're actually confronted with the reality that, oh, yes, it looks like it did, you begin to think about the future. It seemed like Trump's election happened because of Facebook. It just seemed like Facebook had turned into a place for people to fight and poke each other with sticks. And it seemed like the machines were finally going off the rails. Yes, and to be fair to Facebook, I don't think in the early years the pieces were fully in place. I think it was, it was in the run-up to their IPO that Sheryl Sandberg really strong-armed the, the engineers into finding some way to monetize this thing quickly. I think before that moment, it, the, you know, the DNA of Facebook was always a little bit sketchy Zuckerberg's original aim of of launching a hot or not uh, site using the photos of of his uh, female classmates at Harvard is just kind of gross and that was that was the founding vision uh, so you know going from there how how good could we ever expect this thing to be but I don't think it really got what what you might term uh, evil until the moment when they really had a strong desire to make a boatload of money right away. And they figured out a way to monetize the details in the dossier that they were building on you and every other individual user. So it, w- it wasn't simply that they would manipulate the newsfeed in order to get you to click it, although that was a big part of it. But they also, on the other side of that equation, they needed to figure out who you were. and so. When they figured out that there was money to be made from surveillance, that instituted a a regime within Facebook that really served as the building blocks for the absolute mess we see today. 
this mess that Mark Hurst is talking about has gotten too big to hide. And the folks I talk to who are staying on Facebook are totally aware of the mess. So it's not that they're in denial. Mostly they're just waiting for more data before they decide what to do. I would say I am in a holding pattern with regard to that and that I'm pretty, I guess pragmatic would be the word. I'm not sure that's the right word, but in the sense that I'm keeping an eye on sort of what people are doing and where they're going. And if and when enough people depart the platform, I will depart it too. It's a calculation for you. Absolutely. It's a, it's, yes. That's exactly what it is. And I guess I think there's so much value to connecting that for the moment, knowing, you know, based on current knowledge, it outweighs the ways that they're evil. But yeah, I, I consider that subject to change, you know, with the next revelation of what they have done. If 100% is, I'm quitting and I'm leaving, I'm 80% there, and I really don't envision a future past age 30, maybe, where I'm still on Facebook. And while we all have need or value in connecting to others, I don't know that I will have the same voracious social or professional hunger that I have as a 25-year-old to meet more people, to make more connections. I would get off if I could, I think. I think also as a company, I really question and I think probably agree with you in a lot of ways about your feelings about the company's moral and professional failings. I think the, the, the case of Myanmar in the, or like Sri Lanka and the use of Facebook as a, as a gathering place for ethnic hatred um, that they, the company claims to not really know much about, but then also continues to push the use of the platform in these in these markets that they are very much in control of the medium. That really bothers me. At the moment, my inclination is is kind of wait and see, and I'm I'm trying to adapt my usage to be less political, I guess, and to I'm I'm shifting my energies to other platforms. Right now I'm experimenting more with Twitter, which I haven't used much in the past. I mean, sort of altering my usage doesn't solve the, the sort of moral problem with, with you know being connected to Facebook still. But it does tone it down a little bit. I guess it, it, it takes a little bit of the juice out of what I'm giving to Facebook as a corporation. It feels like I'm going to keep using it for my own purposes, but I'm not like I'm not gonna like it. Like I'm not going to feel like like we all could be that you know that startup in our dorm rooms. You know, it's it's like we've all grown up past that, and we know more about the world now, and we make our decisions as adults. And you know, I've worked in a corporation for a long time. I know how some of that sausage is made and how tempting it is. And, you know, there's an absolute betrayal of trust. This is not a college student's mistake. This is a grown-up's mistake. It's valuable to me professionally. It's extremely valuable to me personally. And yet I am deeply troubled by what it is as a company and um, how it benefits from me and my social needs and desires. And so I totally understand and respect people like you who are leaving. And I may get to that point. 
more and more people are getting to that point. And when that moment hits, that's when you have some serious thinking to do. Well, we should first acknowledge that it's going to be painful. There's no getting around it that if you leave Facebook, it will be less convenient in some way than it is today. And there's no silver bullet, and I don't have a painkiller for that. It's going to be less convenient. But, and that's part of the reason why I don't think it's realistic that we're going to see, you know, 100 million people all leave Facebook all at the same moment. It, people, most people naturally uh, are, are going to tend to want to maintain the convenience that, that they enjoy, even if they're aware intellectually of some externalities that are, that are less pleasant. But there are individuals out there who are conscious enough about what's going on in the world um, and are in whatever situation that they can absorb the inconvenience of getting off Facebook. Not everybody can, and I I, want to be respectful of that. And so I think I'm held back less by reality and far more by my perception of a loss of social connections, that if they were strong enough or had enough potential, I could cultivate just as well offline. And I think a lot of us, for mental health and other reasons, would be well advised to consider doing so. What it means mostly is um, is losing connection with, with people who we really enjoy exchanging with. That's why it's hard to let it go. It's uh, such a fascinating and powerful tool. And I think it I think it probably has done a lot of good. I think that it has kept a lot of people together during a trying time for the United States, for example. Rather than just accepting bullshit and the, the hate and the violence that comes out of Trump, you know, we've, we've reminded each other on a regular basis that this isn't normal and we never want it to become normal. Um, so, you know, I see so much that's good in the platform. So there's no way around it. Leaving Facebook is hard. What I can tell you, though, is that the people on my advisory panel who have left Facebook seem pretty happy about it, especially Mark Hurst and Ashira Morris. I deleted my account back in spring of 2018. I think it was March or April. Uh, I had had an account for a number of years Although I had found that over the last year or two of my usage of Facebook, almost everything I posted uh, was an anti-Facebook post. And at some point I realized what a waste of time to go on to a service <laughs> to spend my time writing about the problems of the service. The, the, obviously what I should do is just get off of the service completely. And I deleted my account and never looked back. I think it's good for the soul (laughs) to leave Facebook, if you can. And as I said, again, to be fair, a lot of people uh, can't reasonably break off relationships to leave Facebook. But if you can, it's good for you. And there's a wealth of peer-reviewed journal articles coming out that indicate that people have better mental health when they get off of Facebook and get off of Instagram. And so... Even if you think it doesn't have an impact on the company itself, you are helping yourself. Just, just, <laughs> just leave. See how it goes. The water's fine. Come on out. There were a couple of moments in the weeks after where I like thought about it. 
and had lingering thoughts about like, oh, there might be events that I'm missing or there might be these gaps where it used to be something that I relied on Facebook for and maybe didn't realize it at the time. But after about a month, it was like an addiction terms, I guess. <laughs> like those like cravings went away and I, I really have not looked back. Did you get any blowback um, from friends? Like, why aren't you on Facebook? I feel like I don't know what you're up to anymore. I don't know how to reach you. Surprisingly, not a lot of blowback from friends. I like put together a little message before I left, you know, the like farewell. <laughs> it was like, I'm not going to live here anymore. But I live in a lot of other places, right? Like, I have an email address, I have a phone number, find me in these other places. And again, like, the people who I have kept in touch with in an active way and not a passive way, those friendships I don't think have suffered. Now, Ashira was an especially interesting person to have on my panel. Because not only is she a very happy former Facebook user, but she also runs an email newsletter called Inbound Boston that she started partly to prove that there is such a thing as life without Facebook. I think that a meta message of Inbound Boston is that you don't have to be on Facebook to understand what's going on, at least in Boston, um, and know interesting things to do around the city. Like, I think those are two things that Facebook has become the default for. And I am subtly saying, no, it doesn't have to be. There's other ways that you can get this information in a digestible, curated way. In addition to all that, Ashira has some practical advice for people who are thinking about getting off Facebook. If you're trying to leave Facebook, the bottom line is one, you can. It is possible. Two, you need an exit strategy. You should figure out what you are using it most for and how you are going to replicate that off of the platform if you can, if it's worth it to. Like, I think instead of impulsively deleting it and then realizing all of the things you relied on it for, it's helpful to take the time and, like, do an autopsy of sorts before its death um, and like really have a holistic sense of what parts of your life are ingrained in it and how you want to create the time and space and systems to do those things outside of it. I have friends now in my adult life who live in Rwanda, who live in Tasmania, and I feel like I keep in touch with them just as well, if not better, by like, you know, scheduling the time to call them instead of like sending Facebook messages. Um, and we have like long email chains and like these types of communication that are more intentional and require more presence, I think, than um, Facebook is designed to do. One additional trick that Ashira came up with was to print out friend cards that she can give out, just like business cards. <laughs> and it says, I think you're cool on one side. And on the other side, it has my email address and my phone number and my name. And I'm really excited to put them to use um, because that's what I've been doing verbally for a while. And now I have something I can give you 
That's really awesome. <laughs> and I'll be very offended if I don't get one of those cards before yeah. we... Okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, it's I've got one in my bag. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't printed my own friend cards yet, although I love the idea. But I have been thinking about what I'm going to do to compensate for being off Facebook. I have about 750 friends on Facebook. So I started off by making a spreadsheet of all of them and figuring out which ones I really want to stay in touch with. That's about 150 people. And I've been reaching out to them individually to make sure we know how to reach each other by email or phone. And for my immediate family, I've already switched over to a different messaging platform. It's a free app from Microsoft called GroupMe. And for sharing quick updates and photographs, it's fine. I'm trying to stay mindful of the fact that once I'm off Facebook, all of my friends who are there are going to have to go out of their way to keep in touch with me. Here's a bit more of my chat with my friend Tova. Um, like, I'm, I'm leaving Facebook. I'm going to not be there anymore. Other people are leaving Facebook. How does it make you feel when you lose touch with, with folks that you follow on Facebook? And um, can you imagine finding other ways, like being deliberate about constructing alternative ways to keep in touch with people in your own life? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll have to. It, it, I actually had this really sinking feeling when you announced on Facebook that you were leaving it because even though you and I had phone numbers and email addresses for each other, you know, for 20 years before Facebook came around, uh, I think we've reconnected much more because of it. So, you know, I just thought, oh, I'm going to have to really make an effort and it's, it's a effort I want to make to be connected with you. But, um, you know, I have other friends that are not on Facebook and yeah, it's a, it, it requires a different kind of attention. I want to say one more thing about leaving Facebook. It's not all or nothing. There's a continuum here. Maybe you've heard about the reducitarian movement. It's made up of people who don't want to become vegetarians or vegans, but do want to eat less meat. I'm totally there to support those people. And I think there's also a reducitarian approach to Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp. And it just involves checking in a lot less often. Sometimes it can help to delete those apps from your phone, or at least turn off notifications. Use it advisedly, like so many other things in our lives. I think Netflix is, wants you to watch forever and never turn it off. That's why they have the autoplay. So should I say don't ever watch Netflix? <laughs> no, I'd say if you find that you want to watch Netflix, that's great, but at least know where they are trying to manipulate you, what their agenda is. A little bit of awareness can help guide you to better practices and to, to use these services to a reasonable amount for entertainment, relaxation, whatever, or in the case of some social media, um, maybe relationships or being informed without falling into the rabbit hole of addiction, polarization, toxicity, and everything else that really they're, they're built to bring about. So, you know, one of the reasons you're on Facebook is because everyone else is on there. But if you, if you no longer felt like Facebook was the one place that you could be in touch with all of your connections, um, it would be much easier to leave. Um, and so I think by taking that step yourself, you're helping other people take that same step. So let's step back and look at the big picture. Our attitudes towards Facebook are shifting, and the role that Facebook plays in our lives is changing. And of course, Facebook itself will keep changing too. 
The part of Facebook's business where it's made the biggest stumbles and also reaped the biggest profits is the newsfeed. Zuckerberg said in March that he wants to move the company away from its reliance on the newsfeed and toward encrypted messaging between small groups. Now, who knows whether he was serious? But with so many new revelations about the company emerging every week, and with so many executives departing the company, and with so many investigations still underway, and with so much toxic content still circulating on Facebook, and with politicians talking about regulating and maybe even breaking up the company, you can bet that Zuckerberg is looking for a quick way out of the company's troubles. The thing to remember is that we don't have to wait for Facebook to fix itself. We can cut back on how much we use it, or we can walk away entirely. Both actions send a message to Facebook itself. But more importantly, they allow us to take back some control over the way we interact with our fellow humans. And on that theme, I want to bring in one more voice from our advisory panel. Yes, I'm Victor McElhenney, and I'm a lifelong science journalist. I've really been doing this since Sputnik back in 1957, and it just gets more and more fascinating. Victor is a retired science journalist who spent his career at newspapers like the New York Times and the Boston Globe, and then moved to MIT, where he started a fellowship program for mid-career science journalists. He's been one of my most important mentors. Victor is in his 80s now, and he doesn't have to figure out how to leave Facebook because he never joined it. And I think his reasons are pretty interesting. I was getting all kinds of pitches to, to join Facebook and to communicate that way. And I, I sensed intrusion. I sensed uh, messing up my head. What I need to do is to talk to, to other people and collide with them in conversation and learn things and test out ideas and begin to shape uh, a way, a sort of way of thinking about a particular subject in conversation with uh, with other people. So uh, for, I mean, it's what I need is colleagues. And uh, what I don't need is uh, to show off the nice photo I took yesterday. Do you get that kind of discourse and collegiality through email or? Yes. Okay. Yes, I do, because I will send a message saying, just saw this. Uh, here's the URL to go find it. Uh, let me know what you think. Or I will sometimes f- go deeper than that and say, the following three thoughts occur to me about why this is important. And uh, I'm doing that partly to get my own reaction down on paper or in something that is almost like a diary or whatever, but I also want them to be stimulated. I'm trying to stimulate those other people to pay attention to something that will be, in a sense, reinforcing to them. So that sounds so old school in some ways. Yes, but I think this other model is is worthwhile. I think I was, uh, I have this notion of politeness. See, obviously, if you rush up to people and communicate something to them, that could be intrusive. I mean, after all, we don't want to mess up our heads. We want to be able to pay attention to what we want to pay attention to uh, without a hell of a lot of, of interruptions. If you're going to do anything creative with life, like make music or do poetry or uh, get uh, the historical facts about something straight in your mind, you have to have periods of uninterrupted research and reflection. Uninterrupted research and reflection. If you were to try to come up with the best phrase for the opposite of what Facebook is about, that might be it. And sure, there's a time for being reflective, and there's a time for being social. 
Just like there's a time for reading a book, and there's a time for kicking back and watching Netflix. But here's the thing. When you take more responsibility for those choices, you give tech and media companies like Facebook less space to mess with your head. And if enough of us take responsibility, we'll be giving those companies less space to mess with our democracies. Soonish is written and produced by me, Wade Rausch. Our opening theme is by Graham Gordon Ramsey. All of our other music is from the wonderful title card music and sound. I want to thank everyone who sat down to talk with me for this episode, including Tova Perlmutter, Rudy Seitz, Kip Clark, Tamar Abishai, Peter Fairley, Nick Anderson, Mark Hurst, Ashira Morris, Victor McElhaney, and my friend Deborah in Minneapolis. At the show's website, soonishpodcast.org, you can read a transcript of this episode that shows exactly who said what. You'll also find a link where you can subscribe to Ashira Morris's awesome newsletter, Inbound Boston. It's an incredibly useful resource for anyone who lives in or near Boston. So subscribe now. I have an exciting piece of news to share with Soonish listeners. In addition to producing the podcast, I'm now writing a monthly column for Scientific American magazine. It's called Ventures, and it debuted in the February 2019 issue. It's all about technology, culture, business, and innovation. So if you like Soonish, you'll like the column, which you can find online at scientificamerican.com. Did you know that Scientific American is the nation's oldest continually published magazine? It launched in 1845, and it's still going strong. You can buy a combined digital and print subscription for just 35 bucks a year. If you'd like to support what I'm doing here at Soonish, there are two key ways to do that. The first is to leave a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. The second way you can support the show is by donating on Patreon. At patreon.com soonish, you can sign up to make a per-episode gift at whatever level feels right for you. This season, if you sign up as a new supporter at the $5 per episode level or above, I'll send you a Soonish coffee mug with the new Season 3 logo on it. So along with your daily caffeine, you'll get a little dose of informed optimism. Check out the mug and all of our other cool rewards at patreon.com soonish. This show is a proud founding member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-based collective of smart, independent, story-driven podcasts. And this week, I want to recommend the latest episode of the incomparable art history podcast from Hub & Spoke, The Lonely Palette. You heard Tamar Abishai earlier in this episode. She was part of my advisory panel. And the new episode is all about Ansel Adams and how his brand of quote-unquote pure or objective photography actually managed to say quite a lot about Adams' personal views about the environment and environmentalism in the American West. Tamar concentrates on one Adams photo from Grand Teton National Park, a view I hope to see for myself on a big RV tour of the national parks this summer. You can see that image and hear the show at thelonelypalette.com. Here at Hub & Spoke, we're super excited for Tamar because she's in the running for Boston's Best Podcast Host at Boston Magazine's 2019 Reader Poll. You can help make sure Tamar wins by voting for her yourself at bostonmagazine.com slash readers-poll-2019. And one more thing about Tamar. You can listen to the full audio of our conversation about Facebook in the extra section of our website at soonishpodcast.org. It was a great chat, in part because Tamar was so articulate about why she's not leaving Facebook. I've got one more recommendation for you. If you happen to be in the Washington, D.C. area on April 2nd, 
you must go to the National Air and Space Museum for an IMAX screening of an amazing documentary about 20th century space art called Chesley Bonestell, A Brush with the Future. I met the makers of this film recently, and I'm going to tell you all about them and about Chesley Bonestell, space artist extraordinaire, in the next episode of Soonish. That's it. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back with that episode soonish. <laughs>